To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepger. Welcome to the programme. What are you going to be cooking for Christmas, Ewan? Well, I'm going to my uh, stepbrothers this year, so I'm going to be with, with his family. Uh-huh. And we've already discussed this, actually. Have because you? Yeah. What's on the menu? Well, neither of us like turkey very much. I always think it's a bit overrated. It's one of those things people just eat because it's Christmas. So we're going to have a nice bit of beef. Beef? Oh, okay. You didn't say ham. I've seen loads of uh, adverts from the supermarkets for a Christmas ham because, very sadly... Bird flu's actually wiped out half of the free-range turkeys that have been prepared for Christmas. 600,000 free-range birds. This is according to the industry group that's been speaking about it. I don't think I realise how bad the bird flu mm. epidemic's been. It's, it's both culling, but it's also animals that have died. Yeah, it's, it, it seems to be rumbling along without really much publicity, actually, because there's also been some egg shortages. I don't yes. know if you noticed. I was in... Little a couple of weeks ago, and there were there were there were no eggs at all. And I think particularly for free range flocks, they put them indoors. And, and I guess some of those the laying flock have been cold as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the issues is it's going to make apparently food production for next Christmas worse in terms of the poultry. But then you mention eggs; it's one of the products that has gone up in price so much because the other factor around Christmas is the BRC figures that came out today. So inflation for food prices is just staggering. Twelve point four percent in November. Yeah, twelve. Yeah, twelve and a half percent. So that is that is pretty much an eighth, isn't it? Prices are an eighth higher than they were a year ago. And interestingly, you, you mentioned <clears throat> eggs. It is these basics: meat, eggs, dairy, and coffee. You know, some of the real staples of people's cupboards and fridges, which have which have gone up the most. So this is you know it's really concerning, isn't it? If you're on a tight budget. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's going to make, you know, this uh, Christmas, this winter really pretty difficult. Having said that, not everybody obviously celebrates Christmas, which kind of gets me on to the next point that I wanted to make, which is about the census figures. Did you read them yesterday? Mm, Really interesting. They are really interesting. A lot of the newspapers focus on the religious aspect, the fact that less than half of people in England and Wales said that they were Christian. I thought far more interesting. I'm a Londoner through and through, Ewan. Two thirds (laughs) of Londoners identify uh, with with an ethnic minority group, so 36.8% of Londoners are white British and others identify you know, with an ethnic minority group. It's, it, the diversity of Britain has increased a huge amount. Mm, I remember these figures from 10 years ago. I think that was the first time we saw London becoming majority non-white British. Yeah. And that has really you know, ex- expanded, it really increased over the last 10 years, particularly outer London. Inner London has been very diverse for a long time. Yeah. But outer London used to be 
you know, f- full of kind of cockneys and 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 and, <laughs> and white Britons, but it is much less so now than it used to be. Um, and interesting that lots of other cities are becoming more and more like London as well. Yes. Um, but it really is kind of, in some ways, it's a very urban phenomenon mm. and it has big implications for politics because the census uh, data, um, Ipsos saying that actually the last general election, 64% of all black and ethnic minority voters voted Labour, only 20% voted Conservative. So uh, the political parties have got to be thinking about this in a big way. Mm, and then, of course, remember that 2019, of course, was a really, really good election for the Conservatives. Right. So 20% was a relatively decent share amongst mm. uh, black and minority ethnic voters uh, compared to some elections in the past. I've seen that that figure actually, uh, you know, the, the, the Labour figure higher. higher. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually <laughs> not... I think the, the urban voter, the, the city voter, the those concerns are really, really important. Um, you know, traditionally that kind of idea of of maybe cre- pleasing the green belt voters. You know, that that mindset perhaps is challenged, has to change. Yeah, I think the interesting thing, though, of course, is that most cities are not marginal, and of course, it, it, no. it, it, the elections tend to be played out in smaller towns. So it'd be fascinating to map the the, the ethnicity data onto some of these smaller towns and and, and see how it interplays with that because the countryside votes Tory anyway yeah. cities vote Labour anyway so it is these these suburban areas and these small towns that, that are really are you, where the election will be played out you always bring the sophology to, to love a bit of sophology good stuff <laughs> okay uh, look also on the programme though today um, on to the sort of more bread and butter and business and economic issues for this Conservative government I was speaking to George Bridges earlier the chair of the Economic Affairs Committee in the House of Lords so it's Lord Bridges of course he got to grill the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey yesterday Bridges was talking about how he doesn't support a law to force the government to use the independent OBR when it comes to um to budgets or fiscal statements because of course we were talking about the disastrous mini budget the Kuateng Trust mini budget in September he was telling me that the government just needs to stick to best practice so I want you to have a listen to that a bit later on in the program Mm, yeah really interesting I see Andrew Bailey was he didn't really mince his words did he Sometimes central bank governors do mince their words, but he, he didn't. No, he was pretty damning, actually, about how little information made its way from a government, number 10, number 11, Treasury, uh, to the Bank of England. Mm, and it, it was deliberate, wasn't it? I mean, the government was quite honest about that. So uh, the Bank of England chief economist, actually, has also been speaking today, talking about Brexit being partly to blame for the UK's high inflation uh, by causing labour shortages. He was speaking at a conference. Hugh Pill said that the Bank of England estimates that leaving the European Union will cost the UK economy 3% in permanently lost national output over the next 15 years. Well, Bloomberg's UK correspondent Lizzie Burden has hot-footed it into the studio. Uh, Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us. Now, uh, Pill actually says that Brexit has put upward pressure on prices in three different ways. What, what did he say exactly? Well, uh, you're testing me now, Ewan. Uh, <laughs> I, I think what he said was that it's because we've ended the free movement of labour with the European Union, it's creating tightness in the labour market, which means that firms have to pay more to get the staff. So there's one bit of inflation. There's reducing competition uh, between firms. So that's another one. And if I were hazarding a guess, I'd say the third one would be uh, that it's added friction in the supply chain. Am I right? That sounds pretty good. Uh, Right. (laughs) But but what I think is interesting here is that 
It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. And we had the former Bank of England policymaker Michael Saunders on Bloomberg TV telling us that Brexit had permanently damaged the UK economy, that without it, we wouldn't have had an austerity budget. And that was when he'd left the committee. So he'd been kind of unleashed. His comments were put by MPs to the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey at the Treasury Select Committee. And Andrew Bailey was not as frank as Hugh Pill has been today. Swati Dingra, the newest member of the committee, Saunders's replacement, she was more frank. She said that it was undeniable that the hit to UK trade was bigger than other European countries because of Brexit. Uh, but she's a trade economist. You would expect her to say that. So interesting that Hugh Pill should be be so bold in his comments and ironic too that he should do it on a day when we're hearing from treasury officials that the government wants to unleash a brexit big bang 2.0 in the city of london yeah i was going to pick up on that hang on what happened to brexit freedoms to uh, the end of a lot of eu regulations actually allowing business to be freed up and to do better and for the city of london that means you know the post financial crisis era regulations ring fencing as it's known that being rolled back, maybe. Well, yeah, let's remember what ring fencing actually was intended to do after the financial crisis. The idea is that banks have separate pots of capital to absorb potential losses in each part of the bank. But the government's criticism is that that unnecessarily traps capital. And so to use its Brexit freedoms, it wants to deregulate and boost growth. Now, the problem with that is that actually there's nothing in the EU rules that requires ring fencing. So this has nothing to do with Brexit. And actually, the UK was an international outlier when it came to ring fencing. The second point I would make on this is that to refer to it as a Big Bang 2.0 is also a bit of a mistake when the original Big Bang under Margaret Thatcher was deregulation accompanied by innovation. And the criticism I hear from business leaders time and again is that even though this government talks a good game on innovation, it's not doing enough to boost the economy. Lizzie, just back to the um, inflation story. There was a bit of good news, wasn't there, from Hugh Pill, that relief is coming at some point, I guess we knew that anyway, but he thinks it's going to be coming uh, sort of later on in 2023. Yeah, he says it will come rapidly in the second half of next year, but it's the near term that he's concerned about, particularly because of this tightness in the labour market. And it echoes comments from his colleague, Cur- uh, fellow Bank of England policymaker Catherine Mann yesterday, she was saying that she's worried inflation expectations are becoming embedded at 4%, so twice the Bank of England's target, uh, and that's going to require some more aggressive tightening. She was asked, does that mean supersized hikes when it comes to the December meeting? Could she be voting for 75 basis points, 100 basis points? But she batted that question away. I think what you can take from both of them is that they probably want higher rates for longer. Okay, higher rates for longer. Uh, It's certainly a tricky moment then. I mean, we've reflected quite a bit on the inflation figures this morning, the BRC figures. You know, food price inflation is hair-raising. Yeah, and this is bad 
politically. Yes. Uh, because food price inflation is 12, over 12%, the British Retail Consortium says. This is eggs, meat, coffee, dairy products, all the things that the poorest households spend the most money on. Mm. And what the British Retail Consortium is saying is that poorer households are pr- spending more of their money on energy and food, less on festive spending. So this is going to be really painful for the retailers who are just trying to eke out Christmas for as long as they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Lizzie Byrne, for being with us, our Bloomberg UK economist. I mean, already uh, the Black Friday sales were coming thick and first very early. Early discounting by the retailers seems to be mm. the implication, but very tough politically, really, this winter. Yeah, I see the Barter Card survey says that spending uh, was up on their cards compared to last year with the Black, Black Friday sales. So perhaps people are getting those bargains in early rather than buying things more expensively in uh, December. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
for over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey offered an insight into the disastrous September mini-budget when he gave a testimony to the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee yesterday. So he revealed the extent to which he and the bank were left uninformed about the scale of Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's announcement. He called it, quote, a most extraordinary process. Well, earlier we spoke to the chair of the Economic Affairs Committee in the Lords, George Bridges. Uh, Lord Bridges served in government roles going back as far as John Major and in the Department for Exiting the European Union. Take a listen. I have to say it was quite a jaw-dropping moment when he revealed that the Treasury official clearly uh, didn't know what was going on in the Treasury itself. And it begs a question as to the functioning of basic procedure within government in the run-up to that mini-budget. Simply observing what is, in my view, the basic tenets of good practice and the process that should have taken place would Mm -hmm. ensure that that would stop that from happening uh, again. In other words, a Treasury official goes to the Bank of England, to the MPC meeting, uh, with an understanding of the outline, at the very least, of an, uh, of a package of measures that was going to be announced within that working week. I mean, <laughs> I think to many of your listeners, they would say that that should be just blindingly obvious. There is obviously a, a second point here, um, which roiled the markets, as we all know, which is the lack of the OBR forecast. That is, and we'll come on to that. But all I would say is, as Mervyn King pointed out yesterday, the process that I've just outlined of the Treasury official being in these meetings with knowledge so that the MPC can make decisions on that basis. Um, That existed before the OBR was brought into existence. So we shouldn't just pin everything on OBR forecast or no forecast. This is just basic stuff. And I have to say, it really does beg it according to question just what was going on in Downing Street in the run up to uh, that mini budget. Now, I Mm. I fully accept that uh, there was uh, pressure um, to uh, set out to the market how what was going to happen. But mm-hmm. that, that administration, the trust administration, did have time to do to uh, yes. uh, come to an agreement amongst mm. itself and the cabinet to do so. And I think that what and- will be seen is that they proceeded far too fast and uh, clearly in a very haphazard and disorganized way. Which, yes. Um, which led to, to what we heard about yesterday. I mean, you're right to underline just how unusual this is and that it's not just the OBR. The Treasury hasn't hasn't come back on this, but it's it's all of the institutions really were saved by markets. That is what sort of unraveled the mini budget. Um, it was the pushback on markets that kind of avoided effectively, in some senses, financial ruin for the UK. It wasn't the Bank of England. It wasn't the OBR. It wasn't the Treasury. That is massively problematic, isn't it, for policy in the UK? Well, I think that what's more pro- problematic for policy in the UK is, A, following these basic tenets so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture, not just part of the picture. In the case of a financial statement like that, you need to show how your sums add up. 
that clearly was uh, a matter that um, bothered many people right across the world in terms of the markets. And um, finally, just in case, in, in, in the context of the UK itself, we have to show how we are going to uh, make sure our financial uh, stability is strengthened and not weakened. And that is the, 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 the big mistake that Liz Truss and her administration fell into. But I think it's really, yeah. isn't it also too easy to pin this on a short-lived Conservative administration under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng? Because the MPs are effectively all the same. Yes, we have a new Prime Minister, but it is the same Conservative government. So again, the question is, you know, what have we learned? I mean, should the OBR forecast be a legal requirement, whether you call it a fiscal event, a mini budget, a full budget? Should that be the legal requirement in your view? Um, I don't. I, I. I wouldn't say that it's necessary to be a legal requirement because I think it's shown that it is a necessity in and of itself. I don't see the reason to um, uh, uh, turn it into that. Um, I just think that what we've seen here is that if you don't proceed with that level of clarity about how uh, your plans add up and what the forecasts are, um, you will suffer the consequences. And um, that, that to me is... Uh, but Lord, Lord Bridges, just to, to, to push you on this point, Liz Truss's acolytes are still within the administration, or at least they're within the back benches. This may not be a, a one-off and there must be a way, surely, there's an argument to codify some of this independence and institutional strength and firewalls in a, in, a, in a way that reduces the risk of a repeat. Uh, I, I'm, I'm all in favour of the debate around this, but all I would say is that one can come up with codes and uh, other, other things such as that. But actually, when it comes down to it, it's people observing what is just best practice. And mm. I, I keep coming back to what we heard yesterday was a very, very simple point, that in the Treasury, the Treasury lead officials didn't know what was going to be being announced in its full scope within 24, 48 hours. Now, that is an extraordinary thing. And you can put up all these codes and everything else around yeah. that, around the OBR. But if you've got such a breakdown at the heart of government, no amount of codes are going to save you from that point. So I, I do, um, I wonder, I, I do wonder I, how I, extraordinary I, it is, Lord, Lord, uh, Lord Bridget, given given the context and the, the denigration since 2016, pre 2016, and the Brexit vote of those institutions. Everyone from Michael Gove dismissing experts, all the way down to senior cabinet officials dismissing the OBR. Is it that surprising? Years and years of chipping away at UK institutions has led to this. Well, I think that there are a number of. When you say this, we can talk about what you mean by this. Hmm. But I think that. Um, I, I am very much on the side of the independence of the Bank of England, very much on the side of the strengthening our institutions so that officials can speak truth unto power, very much on the side of ensuring that you follow due process within government. And that includes making sure that the entire cabinet are consulted on enormous packages like this one was and the cabinet wasn't consulted. All of these norms have actually, as you rightly say, they have been chipped away at. But I would say that we can put in place laws and all those kind of things, fine, but actually it comes down to a culture, and here I would agree with you, we need to make sure that we restore the culture so we strengthen our institutions. That is yes. the way to do it. And actually, as you rightly said a moment ago, that is what the markets have told us, that what I have set out is the right way to proceed because it gives not just politicians and the public, which is all important here, clarity about what the government is doing, but the markets clarity about what the government is doing. And essentially, we have heard, uh, learned this lesson or rather we've been told it again the hard way. 
Let's look forward, shall we? Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, his plans for fiscal consolidation. Are they credible, given that most of the consolidation and tightening, austerity, if you want to call it that, is going to be backloaded, potentially after the next general election? Is that simply too little? First point, I mean, they are credible in the sense that they've set them out. They, in terms of, um, with an OBR forecast, they've um, mapped out a lot of the details around how they're going to achieve it. As you rightly say, there is the question mark over timescale. Um, I don't doubt the government's resolve to see these plans through. And as you rightly say, a lot of the pain, especially on the core conservative vote, which one shouldn't underestimate the difficult decisions that they've taken there, is going to be felt in the next two, two to three years. We're doing the tax part first and the spending part second, as you rightly say. Where I would agree with you, and I was, we, we had an interesting debate on all this last night in the House of Lords after Andrew Bailey's appearance at my committee. Um, where I would agree with you is we have extreme vulnerability still within the public finances to continued uncertainty and shocks. I think I'm right in saying that if the gas price goes back up to uh, its uh, August peak, that would add potentially 42 billion to public borrowing. We've all seen the sensitivities following the Trust Guatang mini budget of our public finances to rise in um, yields and, and, and what happens when, um, when when interest rate rises. So your question in terms of the resolve, I don't doubt. But the question I have is uh, how we would respond in the event that there is a further level of uncertainty that is beyond the government's control. And that is where my question really is. Um, okay. There are other issues uh, that we can see obviously within the government's control, um, such as public sector pay. And the final point is that as Andrew Bailey set out yesterday, there is still this issue that we have seen arising since COVID of around 600,000 people leaving the UK workforce. Um, and the effect that that might have on participation rates, wages and the labour market overall is also something that we need to keep an eye on um, from that perspective. On the question of inflation, the Governor Bailey said that the expectation is there will be more to do on that front. What was your reading and your assessment of how far they're going to go in terms of rate hikes, given those inflationary dynamics, but also given the weakness and vulnerability uh, within within the building, within the housing sector and, and higher mortgage rates? I was very interested in that, and I'm not going to try and overinterpret what the Governor said to my committee. I mean, I'm just noting also what Sir Dave Ramsden was saying last week where and I, I'm, I'm maybe being unfair to Sir Dave but he was seen to be questioning whether um, the uh, consolidation of uh, in the budget would enable um, uh, interest rates to be significantly lower and I think was picking up on a number of points that we've been discussing so mm -hmm. I'm watching with great interest what is going on on that that's all I'm going to say on that front. So that was Lord Bridges, the chair of the Economic Affairs Committee uh, in the House of Lords. A really very interesting interview on what happened during the mini budget in September. Yeah, interesting that the Bank of England government was uh, so frank. Of course, the, the government uh, uh, really sort of chose not to have the Bank of England involved. And they were sort of quite blunt about that, weren't they, at the time? Yeah, <laughs> they were. More difficulties, though, you and also piling up for the government because... I think we should change our look ahead to the strikes diary <laughs> because there's another one. 13th of December to the 16th of January, driving instructors across the UK are going to walk out. Again, a dispute over pay and pensions. Yeah, in fact, it's just part of a wave of action by uh, civil servants that is set to affect. And when I read this, I wondered if it was a mistake. 124 
government departments. Uh, really quite something. I didn't adding... know there were 124 <laughs> departments. <laughs> no, I'd like to see them all listed. But yeah, another wave of strike action, adding to all the other uh, uh, areas we've seen over the last uh, few months. Okay, so that's it uh, for us today. If you did like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and also try to give it five stars, please, so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitt. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.